we do have a long way to go to get all those people registered at voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Hey, welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators, government officials, uh, and others about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure that elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent manner. Now, on Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned. We provide insights from a world-class team we've built here. We interview leading election experts and thought leaders. We're passionate about democracy, and we explore election issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election process. For this episode, I'm joined by John Sebas, the OSIT Institute's co-founder and chief election technology whiz, and Frame Masters, the we'd like to refer to as the voice of democracy, or in today's episode, really, the voice of the voter who's trying to understand this concept of blockchain. And let me just say that when we're talking about blockchain today, unlike the world of cryptocurrency, where that term is most commonly used, blockchains today for elections refer to ledgering technology, the underlying concept of a blockchain which is this endless timeline of, of information and how it applies to voter registration data, ballot data, election administration data, and all the things that have to do with elections. Voting is an essential tool for any democratic government. It is the most important factor that makes a government for the people and by the people. How confident should we be that this will be a fair election? The paper ballot system has long been used by countries around the world. We've been using the paper ballot voting system since the beginning of the 19th century. And for a system that has been in place for over two centuries, there have been a lot of errors and dramas. As far as the ballots are concerned, it's a disaster. Two weeks late, we still don't have Michigan's audit of the state's election results. And as our Grant Herms reports, although the 2020 election is long past, there are still new videos alleging fraud making the rounds on election night in Detroit. The concept is simple. You mark your vote on a piece of paper and put it in the ballot box. We usually have a central authority that records, counts, and checks all of the votes. At the end of the election, the votes are counted, and whoever gets the most votes is the winner. As simple as it may sound, there are a lot of issues with this system. Are you sure it was counted? Was it thrown away? Will the election be fair? Malicious actors have many avenues to influence paper ballot election, whether it's using intimidation tactics at the ballot boxes or just stuffing the boxes with fake votes. Once your vote has touched the bottom of the ballot, there's no way for voters to personally know whether it was counted or not. The ballots that you said you saw are lying around the place or in trash cans or whatever. Where are you hearing that from? They're, the videos are going viral everywhere. Uh, I've seen them on TikTok. I've seen them on Facebook. According to a 2020 Harvard poll, 38% of Americans lack confidence in election fairness. So there are lots of disadvantages to a paper ballot system. It's surprising we still haven't moved on from the traditional paper ballot system of voting. So how can the blockchain help? Blockchain technology can reinforce this democratic process. 
blockchain can introduce a tamper-proof digital voting system that allows citizens to vote from the comfort of their homes. The goal is simple, to make the election process as transparent as possible. Any potential voter can securely log in using a webcam and a government-issued ID. After they're done voting, they can use their voting ID to track their vote and check that it has been cast correctly. With blockchain, the process is decentralized, so everyone can hold a copy of the full voting record on their own devices. The data is encrypted to protect the identity of individual voters. Illegitimate votes cannot be added and the historical record cannot be changed because everyone holds a copy and can check that all of the votes comply with the rules and are counted properly. Proponents of e-voting have argued that it could improve voter turnout by appealing to young people and allowing citizens to vote on their own devices whenever they want. Sounds a bit more 21st century, right? It's just as anonymous as the paper ballot system, except each vote can be verified throughout the election process. But the greatest hope behind blockchain voting is that it will create more inclusive voting systems and restore trust. This is the promise of a blockchain-based voting system in a nutshell. Well, I'll tell you what struck me about that was a couple of things. First, did you catch that Harvard study in 2020 at 38%? And now today, the polls are showing that that's nearly double because lack of trust in elections is now closing on 70% of the electorate polled, which means that's across the spectrum. So it feels like the two things I heard there, the two things that we want to talk about today, right? A loss of trust. Some say it's a loss of belief. And this thing that you and I like to call techno stagnation. So we're focused on true innovation and public technology for GovTech. I mean, that's what we're really about. And what we've learned, and we, we look forward to sharing with our audience today, is the sort of the step-by-step adoption roadmap that really addresses real-world needs and, and principally in public trust and how we're doing things here at the Trust the Vote Project to actually work in that direction, a direction that I think is is in some cases eloquently described. It's aspirational, but we know that there's a lot of technology that can that can help. The the pathway though is a trusted relationship. And that's one of the things we find really important about what we've accomplished at the Trust the Vote Project and the OSIT Institute is that well over a decade, we have built up a relationship of elections officials, building a trust relationship with them that we're not a vendor, we're a research organization, we're nonprofit, and we're here to really help them. And what we've learned is that there's sort of seven steps to getting there, right? Awareness, knowledge, consideration, selection, satisfaction, loyalty, and advocacy. Those seven stages of how we can help move the world along here in election administration. I mean, one of the things that we know is that the words that scare them the most, as I know you know, John, disruption and innovation. Yeah. Well, I would say that with respect to blockchain technology, most people in election land are probably at step one awareness with a salting of confusion. And disruption is clearly not something election officials ever want to hear about. Innovation can be kind of scary. So the way that innovations actually occur is by addressing real problems that election officials know that they have. And if that happens to bring in an innovative technology like a ledgering technology or blockchain technology, then that's the way that they can get some knowledge, some consideration, selection, maybe even get satisfaction to the point where they could consider using that technology for other things than the initial solution. So one of the things, Greg, I want to make sure we cover at the outset here is what that first step is. 
where blockchain technology can address a problem that election officials already know they have. Indeed. And, and even before that, I guess what we want to make sure our audience understands is we hear you. We love what you're thinking about because it's aligned with what we're actually doing. But what we want to do is make sure that what we're doing actually gets adopted, adapted, and deployed. We're going to start with the first key concept. You could write this one down. The key to adoption in this space, we have learned, is to respect the centralized control of current election administration. Now, I know that flies in the face with distributed ledgers and everything else, but walk with us here and we'll help you understand why centralized control is so important. For one thing, it's a legal requirement. And part of that then is the requirement for elections officials to control all the processes of election administration. That's the world we live in today. And so now we're going to start talking about how we can use blockchain class technology to help that world evolve to a better place. All right, here we go. So the first step that John mentioned that sort of conditioned precedent to anything is understanding that ledgers, and I'm really speaking to, to our, our cryptocurrency and tech, technorates out there who understand this stuff. So we'll try not to go down the rabbit hole of technology, but we have frame with us to pull us back if that happens. Ledgers can be used as a mechanism to record voter registration transactions. That's the first step, right, John? Absolutely. And it's a replacement, or maybe at first even a complement to, and perhaps later a replacement for the technology that's been in use, oh gosh, since the 70s, 80s, 90s, where people talk about a voter database. What they mean is the list of all the information and records about people who are or were voter lives in a database management system. And those are really, really fundamentally not set up for data security. It hasn't changed in its architecture since the 80s. And it's really not suitable as the critical place to store critical data, which is critical infrastructure for elections. Elections as critical infrastructure is not that many years old, you know, database technology decades old. And we know, unfortunately, that this critical infrastructure has already been attacked by nation state adversaries. So the integrity of voter records is definitely something that is a known problem where ledger technology can help. And we know for a fact in our work with HS and CISA that they tell us that right now the primary target requiring defense are voter rolls. And it's a place where we know there's a lot of concern about the data hygiene, how correct and current are they, how do they get changed with or without permission, et cetera. So DHS is saying, hey, this is where we need to start. Absolutely. I want to hark back to one of the things in the video segment where they were basically saying that you need to be eternally vigilant. Well, there is no public visibility on voter records management now. And a big part of public distrust, typically more from the left than the right, we'll get to various kinds of distrust, is really, it's like, well, how do we know people aren't messing with the voter records to try to affect the election outcome? So not just security, but also visibility and transparency of voter records processing. So the pain point that can drive adoption is the security. The public benefit comes from the transparency. And this is not hypothetical because we've been talking to a handful of leading state election officials who want this. We've built a system to do it. We'll talk about that later. And for the technical folks out there, the data storage mechanism for voter records is not a blockchain or a public ledger, but it's a private, centrally administered, distributed ledger that unlike databases can really truly protect voter transaction records. That's a security benefit. Yeah. The transparency benefit we'll get to in just a sec. So, so Greg, how, how well did I cover that? We doing okay on ledgers? Yeah, I, I think so. And I just, I just want to say that again, 
This is a crawl, walk, run strategy. And because we've had election officials, about a handful of them come to us and say, we know we need to do something. Is there a solution here? And then we can take a next step. So that next step is that could we also have a public ledger that's comprised of the voters who are registered and which ones of them voted? Does that seem like the next step, John? It is absolutely the next step. It's not something that any sensible election official would undertake unless they had taken the first step. One of the reasons why voter records are not widely published now is if there's a voter list out there, you know, I don't know, some giant CSV file on a government website or something, it's really hard to tell if that's legitimate. People can make copies of it, tamper with them, use that for disinformation. So authenticity of the information is also required. And that's one of the great benefits. If you had a private ledger with all the personal identifying information and you know all the stuff that's that's legally not public, if you had a private ledger of all the voter records transactions, then you could also mirror that to a public ledger with the PII removed so that every transaction that any county election official does across an entire state could be published there where people could see those transactions, people could see what kind of voter list management is happening, and they could verify that what they're seeing is the legitimate thing. That is a really key benefit from, from ledger technology. Yeah. And and we have to point out again to, to the audience that the bar here is lower than you might think, right? What John just described in this space is breakthrough, is the idea that we could use technology to have a, a private reservoir of all the data and that we could express a public version of it in a way that has redacted the things that, that can't be shown because they're personally identifiable information. But the bottom line is it would be like what some people can buy from states, the voter files. But actually authenticated to the election official that manages that data, right? Absolutely. And the thing about grabbing voter files is once you get one, it's out of date. You don't know what happened you know, the day after you get it. So, yeah. so this notion of alerts to voters when their voter record changes, it's a great idea. And some of these leading states want this. But today, the best you can do is take the snapshot from right now and the snapshot from a week ago and compare them. And then what happens tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after? You're not going to know about that until you cough up some money and buy another copy of the voter file next week or next month or whatever. Hey, if I can just jump in, can you just restate again, how do we verify the public ledger? Sure. It's conceptually exactly the same way as we verify a cryptocurrency blockchain. Every time an event happens, it's appended to the end of it. A bunch of crypto stuff happens to make sure that it can't be changed undetectably. And it includes things like a digital signature where we know that the most recent depend was done by a person with legitimate authority to do that. So if there's something that says, Frayne changed her address from Oak Street to Maple Street, that's a voter records transaction. Using the tools that people typically use to look at data on a blockchain, you could not only see that fact, but you could also determine that, that it really is a fact coming from the actual real people who are managing voter lists and not just some some random person making stuff up and trying to mess with you. Yeah, so Frank, think of the ledger as a continuous timeline. Events go on, but they never come off. And it, the system just records every single transaction with a date and time stamp and a something we'll call really oversimplified, a crypto key that sort of identifies how that entry got onto that ledger. So what makes it immutable and much stronger than the way things are done today is the fact that we're capturing everything and anytime you can go back and look and see what happened. Does that help? It does help. It's kind of like uh, when you buy gas, there's a stamp on it and that's how they catch a lot of criminals. Ah. Right? Okay. All right. I'm just saying, I mean, there's, there's a digital trace on everything. So 
it's helpful to understand that. Digital trace is a great way, great way to, to think about that and phrase that. So, John, you know, you were you're talking about the notion of changes creating alerts or tripwires, and this is stuff that states actually want. So, it's stuff we can actually do to get them thinking about this type of technology. But there's a double bonus here too. Yeah, I mean these these are the records that say stuff about not how a voter voted, but that a voter voted in a specific election. So in almost every state, probably every state, voter records databases include voting history that says, you know, this voter voted in this election or this voter didn't. Often includes information about whether they voted in person, early absentee, you know, whatever. Absolutely no record of who they voted for, of course. But that information is super helpful, I think. If it were published in a, a reliable, transparent, authenticated way, then you have an immediate sunshine antiseptic for conspiracy theories about, you know, millions of illegal voters. Right. And it's, and it's great to have the information published. But, you know, to Frayne's question again, why on a ledger? And Frayne, bear with me because I, I want him to go over that again and then I'm going to come back to you. Sure. So right now, today, you could possibly imagine an election official publishing each and every voter record transaction on some website. Right. And you could see, yep, Frayne, Frayne changed address from you know Oak Street to Maple Street. That's fine. That's fine. You could see that. But we also know that most government organizations are not perfect about protecting websites from getting hacked and defaced. They'd be an immediate target. If they were even merely defaced, there would be mistaken hue and cry that the voter lists have been tampered with, even though it's just a mirror of the real one. So it's really, really important to use the security properties of digital ledgers so that people can absolutely validate that the data is the legit data. It has not been changed. And if you see something there that says, for example, you know, John Sevis has been removed from the voter rolls because of a felony conviction or whatever, you can really believe that and tell that it was the real election officials who, who put it there. And that's really important because mistakes sometimes happen. Somebody named John Smith, there probably is several John Smiths in this county, one of whom might be serving felony time and the other John Smiths could be accidentally removed from the voter rolls in a case of mistaken identity. So it's really sure. important to detect that, but you have to make sure that if you're raising the alert, it's not, it's from a reliable source of data. Yeah. Frank? I think John kind of answered my question. We're just talking about how things are published. I mean, where published? It's obviously not going to be published by a book publisher. It's how does it get published? And oh yeah. It's just data that? living on a, on a server connected to the internet where anybody that has the right tools can grab data off of it. Just the same way as, you know, if you're, if you want to look at the Bitcoin blockchain and you know see what was the most recent transaction, you can do that. A web browser is not a very convenient tool for it. There are others, but it's really pretty much the same idea. Yeah. So for our crypto fans, it's the same types of technology we use to, to look at currencies. You could think of it as tools to get at election results reports, things like that. So it ultimately gets expressed in a way that we can all see it. We're sort of in the techno weeds day talking about why we use these ledgers and what's what's so good about it. Greg, when you say we all see it, who is we all? Is that anybody? Public, or is that... right. No, okay. that is the public. It has to be made possible for the public to do that. We've got other things I hope to at the end of the episode today to talk about a little bit that we're working on that are other examples of how the public can prove to themselves by going to a location and looking up something and saying, oh, look at that. My ballot was actually counted as cast. That's what's cool about this technology in terms of what it can do in producing data that you can trust and believe in because it can be verified and you can have people prove to you that it was done correctly. But I just want to jump to, to a point here, John, trying to move along here because there's so much we could talk about here. But there's a key concept that this is centrally administered. However, it's distributed for security resiliency and, and reliability. And I don't know if there's a way to, to 
respond to that in 90 seconds, but that's a key concept that we believe in, right? Uh, absolutely. And the importance of the centralized administration, obviously that's not the way cryptocurrencies work. Cryptocurrencies are not supposed to work that way, but right. it is the way that it has to work to, to have something that only election officials can publish to, but everybody in the world can read. Yeah. And so, it's required by law. I mean, that's yeah. the way they so, have to but, do it. Right. The key concept here is the centrality of the administration does not in any way detract from having it be, a, you know, a, a distributed digital ledger with nodes all over the place and, you know, resiliency and integrity or whatever. It's just that the ability to write to it is limited to a specific government officials. Exactly. And, sure. I, and I think that's, uh, that's really important when we look ahead to the next step, right. which is if we had a ledger that says, here's everything that the public can know about voters and we can figure out, you know, which voter voted in which election and who didn't, then the next step is to publish the votes themselves but separately, right? Yeah, sure. So let's suppose then that election officials adopt a ledger that technology for public transparency about, about who can vote, who can't, who did, and who didn't. What's the next step? So that next step is a ledger for public transparency is about the votes themselves, a uh, ledger that okay. publishes the votes. But that would be a separate ledger, right? Right. Different than the ledgers we've been talking about now. Is that yeah. the redacted ledger? Yeah. The redacted ledger is just the voter registration stuff with the PII removed. I mean, you don't want your driver's license published, for example. And of course, PII is personal. Identifying personal identifiable information. information. Yes. Yeah, keep me honest here. Keep me honest. If I do Sorry. another three-letter acronym, slap, slap me hard. Okay. But the, so, the point about having a separate ledger for votes is we should never have one place that says who voted and then how they vote. How they voted. Exactly. But we can have one of each. We can have one that says everything about voters and nothing about votes. And we can yeah. have another one about votes, ballots cast, votes on them, but says nothing about the voters. Right. right? And so that, that gets us to a separate ledger to, to record what we call a cast vote record. And, and maybe you could explain real quickly what a cast vote record is, John. Sure. A cast vote record is just a blob of data that gets created when a ballot counting machine counts an individual ballot. It's just basically a, a bunch of data where the ballot counting machine says, hi, I'm machine XYZ. The date and time is blah. Here's this ballot. Here's a, an image that I captured when I counted the ballot. And here are the votes that I recorded of it. You know, Smith for president, you know, Brown for board of education, whatever. That's fundamentally all it is. Right. So in this crawl, walk, run strategy frame, what we've got is a ledger or a couple of ledgers that deal with voter registration data. And then we have a ledger or a couple of ledgers that deal with cast vote records, two different parts of the, of the process here, right? And then there's a next step, which is a durable public ledger that is an event log of all the critical activities that officials themselves took. And the reason that's important is that a lot of the complaints right now about what happened in 20 and what may happen again is allegations that officials themselves are committing hanky-panky. And so there is an opportunity to use this technology to help that too. Yeah, absolutely right, Greg. That's a next step. And it's also actually a really emerging pain point for election officials 
Well, it's a today pain point for election officials in Maricopa County and Antrim County and Michigan and places where they get swooped on and have all their stuff you know, taken away and examined to see if they did, didn't do their job right. But it's an emerging pain point for election officials across the country. And it's a pain point for people who are sus- genuinely suspicious about elections because election officials are saying, trust us, we did it right. And we kept all the records, but right. you can't see the records. <laughs> right. right, right. But and there's no just, reason why those records couldn't be published if we used the right technology to publish them in a way where they could be authenticated, in a way where if people made stuff up for disinformation purposes, it would be evident that the made up stuff isn't legit. Right. And right, so that's right, right. everything about physical chain of custody logs today and just literally everything. You should get Jenya back and have her spend like half an hour just itemizing all the stuff that election officials keep track of, but which normally people don't get to see and they should. Right. And this just isn't our vision. I mean, there's many people who are demanding this thing we call process audits, which is different than ballot audits, which you hear a lot about. This is actually auditing the processes. And so every public record that is a key to the public trust should be captured. That was the point I think you're trying to make, John. And as you've said before, and it's a radical transformation of record keeping in election administration practices, Yeah, but it's not so radical of a shift in the way election administrators do their jobs. Exactly. Right. So with it's that in mind, a radical shift in the way we can see what they did. We're not asking election officials to change their chain of custody practices or change their logging practices, but we are saying, hey, you know, you've already got a couple ledgers that do really good things to help the public trust you. Maybe you should ledger your chain of custody log, your event log and all that kind of stuff so that everybody can see that too. We've listened to this whole part, which is really great. We've gotten a lot of really good information. And just to put it in a little container, let's say I'm a super election skeptic. How is all this ledger and changing of the ledger going to make me trust elections more than I do right now? Depends where you are on the bubble. So if you are a person who believes that election officials are trustworthy and you want to trust but verify then you get a lot of information to help you to verify. Now, if you're off that bubble and you just actually think election officials are widely conspiring to steal the election across counties and across states, they can cook up the data and then publish it. That's not going to help. I mean, you're already irretrievably believing with no evidence that elections are fundamentally dishonest. But I think that that is a relatively small fraction of people who are election doubters. And I think that if you're an election skeptic, but maybe not an election doubter, then your skepticism can be relieved if you can see all the information about everything that's happening with voter records, votes, you know, administrative steps, whatever the case may be. And I also think it is an inoculant as well, because there are people who today are not election skeptics or election deniers, but in a couple months they will be. Those ranks will be growing. That's right. That's right. So let's jump ahead to the juicy one. How do we, or, or can we, get to actual blockchain ballot casting. This is the third one, in the, or the fourth one, actually, in the juiciest of, I think. Let's take that in a couple of steps. You could have a ledger that records the votes cast for every kind of voting, whether it's voting on paper, with existing forms of electronic ballot return, which, you know, via email or by voting apps, or the very few ballots that are cast electronically today and which are protected on a blockchain or at least a digital ledger. So there are solutions in use in various parts of the world that actually do that. So you could imagine in the future a ledger that publishes all the votes. But that is not quite, I think, what you were asking about. 
right? So you're asking about something that says, how about we leapfrog the existing electronic ballot return that we do with email and, and stuff and actually mm -hmm. go to the point where it's not the election official who publishes on a ledger the fact that they got a particular ballot and recorded the votes from this ballot that came in electronically. That's not what you're talking about. That's still no. the, the election official writes and the public reads, right. right? So what you're talking about is something that is specific to a new form of electronic ballot return, where there's a separate and special ledger from all the ones we've been talking about, which is one where it's managed by election officials, but members of the public can append to that ledger. And what they can append is a ballot. The act of putting a ballot on this ledger is the act of returning your absentee ballot to your election official. Is that a relatively low-tech way of explaining what you mean by blockchain voting? I don't know. Frayne, did, did you get that? Well, it sounds like we have an evolution of ledgers. Mm -hmm. I think ledger is clearly our word of the day. It's just, I think, fully understanding how those ledgers work and where they live and who's in charge of those is essential to understanding how we can move forward with more accountability and transparency. Yeah, sure. Right. Well, right. There, there's worked examples, right? I mean, there, there are other countries that have done experiments in blockchain voting and the blockchains, or rather to be specific, the, the digital ledger, the servers that operate them are all still under the central control of an elections body. There may be many, many of them for distribution, integrity, and security. So it's not the case that anybody can you know, set up a server and say, hey, can I join your ledger? It's like, no. But they are set up so that a member of the public can append to them and it can append a digital ballot. And indeed, to do a digital ballot in a way that includes some kind of authentication. So I want to go back to something that we heard in our audio piece, which is pretty important. So somebody was describing exactly this type of voting method. And they said, anybody can log in with a state-issued or government-issued ID and cast their ballot, right? That's an important concept. You have to know who cast an absentee ballot before you can decide how to do it, right? And that's one of the big problems because we don't have government-issued digital ID in the United States. So we'll come back to that. But, but getting to the idea the idea is, yeah, there would be a ledger that, that's operated by election officials, but which voters could put their ballot on. Yeah. And so, and we're, we're running thin on time because there's so much we could talk about here on, on this thing. But I mean, we could have a whole session frame on EBR, so electronic ballot return. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I think what everyone is on everyone's mind is, can I be sitting on my couch, pull up my iPhone and vote on it? That's yeah, a proverbial question. <laughs> you'd like to, and with some systems you can, but I don't think we have a system today that actually has exactly the same guarantees on privacy, authenticity, pre preventing double voting, you know, all this kind of stuff. So really using the technology to do that is, is, is critical. And, and here's another really, really key concept. There's some problems. We'll, we'll talk through them briefly in just a sec. But there's a number of problems that haven't really been, been solved yet for the way this kind of blockchain voting would work in the United States. So a public ledger or a blockchain does not solve any of these problems. The ledger technology is important for publishing information, for guaranteeing its integrity, for proving its authenticity. That's necessary. That's proven. The technology works for that. So it's necessary, but not sufficient. Right. And there's several issues involved in U.S. election requirements. Greg, you want to maybe run down a few of those and then I'll hit the tech problems? 
Sure. I mean, so we've got you know, voter identity. We have ballot secrecy. We have, we have central control by elections officials. In other words, access control, data security and authentication, right? Yeah, exactly. So the requirements for the way elections work in the U.S., Greg, that you just said, drive directly to technical requirements for access control and, and all that. So there are some really key issues that are separate from blockchain technology that are today real blockers for this type of blockchain voting that we heard imagined by people on our, our audio clip. The first one is citizen ID, a method for strong authentication, you know, not like a reused password, but you know, really strong authentication for citizens to authenticate themselves digitally to government identities using a digital identity that was issued by a government organization. And the identity management is controlled by a government organization. You're not going to log in with Facebook. Yeah. yeah uh, no to, Facebook to, to login. Ballot, okay. Right. Um, so that, that is Google. a level of digital identity infrastructure in between governments and citizens that does not exist in the yes. U.S. Yeah. Yeah. So the, what about the client malware? How do I know my phone's cool? So you could imagine, you know, sitting on your couch on your phone, casting a ballot that you've just marked, you know, on your screen. And you could even hypothesize that it's completely secure and it's transit over the internet to some server out there that works like a digital ballot box. And it's completely secure when it, once it lands there. That would not be true today. But even if you had all that, you still have the client malware problem. You don't, you're not in control of all the software that's on your phone. And right. the easiest place to tamper with your ballot is on your phone before it leaves. And the easiest way to, to destroy your ballot is to lie to you that the ballot was sent when it wasn't. So, right. so solving the client malware problem is, is definitely a big deal. Yeah, and we we got a project called Thundercast. We could tell you, but we'd have to digitally kill you. So but we are thinking <laughs> well, about that. We're, there's we're, approaches we are thinking to about it. that. We could just quickly say ditto for the server side, right? Yep. So the, the client malware problem frame also exists on the server side, which is what we call the digital ballot box. Yeah. So you don't have control of what's going on. You don't know if those machines are really truly clean of anything that could interfere. And then the last thing here, just for our techno audience, is crypto key management, right? At scale, folks, for the technical folks out here, by ordinary election officials and voters, not engineers. Yeah. There's a key concept there, right? Yes. So key management is the Achilles heel of every, every use of applied cryptography. If you don't manage your keys right, then you, know, the whole, you can give away the store accidentally. And it's, you know, it's, not for, it's not for the faint of heart and it's, it's not, for, uh, not for amateurs. And the point about any form of electronic ballot return, any form of digital voting, where you're using cryptography is that the system has to be managed by election officials and voters have to interact with it too. And so you have to have key management practices that ordinary people can undertake. You can't assume that there's going to be a crypto specialist in every one of the thousands and thousands of county elections offices, for example. So those are four hard problems. All right. So lightning round, I'm going to throw out thunk stuff that we're working on today, folks to address these issues. So you know that, that we're not just talking heads here, but we're actually working this. Okay. So I'm going to throw you a word, John, tell us what it means to our audience. Vanadium. Vanadium. That is our first system that we talked about at the beginning, where there's a digital ledger for the storing of voter record transactions. We've implemented already on AWS managed blockchain. We've demonstrated it has security for, for voter rolls and can absolutely absorb any kind of voter registration transaction. It's ripe for adoption now. Perfect. Vote ready. From a voter perspective, an app that's like LifeLock for your voter registration, it's based on detecting changes in your voter record. We can do that today with the snapshots that we talked about before, but they get out of date and they're not authenticated. It would be way better if we could base vote ready on digitally signed, digitally authenticated, real-time ledgers of, of uh, voter registration.
Vote Tracker Plus. Vote Tracker Plus. I'm going to say the, the the minimal thing, and you're going to have to explain it better than that. Vote Tracker Plus is another one of the steps that we walked through here, which is to have a way of putting on a digital ledger a cast vote record so that people can see everything about, without knowing who voted, can see everything about every vote. Yeah. So at, at the Trust the Vote Project, we have these things called ARPOs, Advanced Research Project Opportunities. The only thing we can guarantee is that one half of them will fail at the outset. They're really <laughs> experimental, in other words. But the, the ARPO here for Vote Tracker Plus is here's the key, folks. It would allow a voter to verify that their ballot was counted as cast. And I'll leave it at that. You'll have to follow us for more. Here's the last one, John. Auditing applications process audits versus ballot. So the ledger technology that we've already demonstrated includes the ability to record any of these administrative transactions, you know, from physical chain of custody to, you know, log sign off and all this kind of stuff. So we've proven that that can, that can happen. And the important connection there is that's a system that could easily be extended to support this thing called a process audit. This is the thing that's like what they, they shifted to in Maricopa County when they found out that the ballots were all okay. They then went, went looking around to see, did the election officials not do their job right? And right. since then, Many people across the political spectrum, conservative, libertarian, whatever, are just basically saying, you know, those state election officials, you know, they ought to hire an auditing firm to go and look at the process that the local election officials did to make sure they didn't, you know, I don't know, forget to apply chain of custody seals or something. That's where this technology can come in to, to enable process audits that today are in demand, but really hard to do. Great. Well, we're going to leave it there because there's so much we can talk about. I suspect another episode's coming on this. But for the for the audience today, really appreciate you listening to us techno babble here about things that we are doing to advance innovation with responsible use of ledgering technology. Now we can't quite get to voting on the blockchain yet or or smartphone voting from from home, but we're working on the basic pieces of technology that in a crawl walk run strategy that's gonna that's gonna help election officials be willing to adopt adapt and deploy. And we can actually get there as opposed to just talking about it. You know, we always do our good stuff segment here. And before I, I ask Frayne to stump the chumps with a wrap up, l- let me just ask you, uh, hey, what, what was the good thing for you this last week or so? I think it was some activity with in New York State between regulators and public advocates and stuff around a particular type of voting machine, a ballot marking device that records votes with a barcode. And you know, our opinion is that those 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 things are, are, are kooky. I mean, people don't read barcodes. If that's what your actual ballot is, then you have no idea if it's right. right. And, and there was a, a lot of confusion about trying to adopt those in New York State and uh, various people in an election integrity world made it very, very clear. That's actually illegal by New York State law. So oh, there may the be way. there may be a role for these for, for this type of thing in the, in the, in the future. But the, but the products that they were offering are not it. And I, and I think detecting that is great. I'll tell you mine real quickly. Listen, we are definitely pro-innovation. We want to do the responsible research and development work to get us down the road to better things, but we just are not ready for widespread internet voting today. And we just really need government to understand it's a crawl, walk, run strategy. And we had an opportunity to speak up about our and lend our voice to what we think about the possibility of internet voting. And so we were invited by a Kenny Freechild, a public citizen, to sign on to a letter this week addressed to the D.C. Council to encourage them to please rethink this notion of throwing the doors open and letting everybody vote in internet voting sort of way. And the problem with that is really, it's not really clear how that might work. So you could have people 
God forbid, sending their ballots across email or worse. And so the good thing for me this week is we had a chance to sign on that letter to have our voices heard as subject matter experts on that. Let's wrap this up, Frayne. I know that we threw a lot of stuff at you and and you were such a trooper, but look, you're the voice of the people. You're the voice of democracy. So what are you hearing here? Are we doing things that you feel may be getting us back to a place where we can trust the vote again? You know, it's interesting as you've been talking, one thing that became clear to me just from the insert at the top is is the man calmly explaining about how we could have this government ID and that it would be more transparent if we could do blockchain voting. It occurred to me that the thing that's great about moving towards that is it's already things that we need to be doing. We like we are ready need to verify the ledger better. And like everything that's taking place now is are the action steps towards moving toward that. And the other thing that became really clear to me is that if we did have blockchain voting, that would mean everyone was voting the same way, which I think is part of the distrust right now, right? Some people can mail in, some people can't, some people trust mail in, some people don't. That seems like something to look forward to is that across states, we can get to a place where at least it's more similar how people are voting. That might help create more trust. And maybe what we want to say there is that there is a consistent way of measuring the the ballots, the accuracy, the consistency of things, things like that. Because we know that today one size does not fit all. Why? Well, just that old reminder that two articles and seven amendments of the U.S. Constitution say the states get to decide how they're going to run their elections. And so we all would love to have one standardized way across across the country nationwide. We know that that's going to be a constitutional challenge. But what we can do is we can make responsible uses of ledgering technology to begin to take pieces of that process and normalize it, as we love to say in the tech world, make it more predictable. But for us, we just come back to the vast mandate. Let's make it verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent in process. And if we do that with these types of ledgers, we're going to be on our way to that promised land of blockchain having a, a marquee role in the administration of our democracy. John, you want to close up anything on that? Did I wrap that up okay? Actually, I don't have anything to add. I think that was a good word. You know, Frank's word for the day might be ledger and my word for the day might be marquee roll. <laughs> and crypto ballot, maybe not a thing yet. But uh, what was that frame? The crypto keeper? <laughs> the crypto keeper. That's w- what we need. There we go. It's, it's getting to be that time of the year. I just want to remind everybody at the Trust the Vote Project, we're working to make election technology more verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. I mean, we call that the vast mandate. We didn't make that up. Election officials taught us that. And we're doing it by building open source technology, what we call the people's voting system. Now, if you'd like to support our work, please join the Trust the Vote Project at trustthevote.org and click the join button at the top. Annual membership is just 25 bucks. However, if you contribute at least five bucks a month, we're also going to give you insider access to extended episode conversations. This conversation going way deep, as deep as you'd like to go it if you're a crypto enthusiast or an engineer in that space. Seminars to meet the members of the team and discuss their work. I mean, we've we've got a lot of folks doing a lot of things here, some 70 people in this organization now. Limited edition gear, we're being told it's coming to support the project and, of course, Dead Men Don't Vote podcast and lots of other stuff. If you'd like to ask us elections-related question or otherwise be in touch, please follow us on Twitter at Dead Men Don't Vote or Trust the Vote or on Facebook at Dead Men Don't Vote or just do the old-fashioned thing and email us at inquiry. That sounds very mysterious. Inquiry at osetinstitute.org. Finally, please take a moment to write a short review on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people hear our message about how we can improve our elections. 
Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of Frame Masters, the voice of the people and the voice of democracy, and our esteemed CTO, John Sevis, thank you for listening to Dead Men Don't Vote. Please remember that it's your civic duty and civil right to participate in elections. Let's all be pro-democracy by prioritizing country over party and supporting free and fair elections in your community and across America. Until next time, make sure you're properly registered and ready to vote because <laughs> the midterm elections are less than 50 days away, folks, and our democracy depends on you now more than ever. 50, 50, 50 days.